0: Salabona, Bona, and thanks for listening. Welcome to the Wines of South Africa podcast. I'm U.S. Marketing Manager Jim Clark. In each episode, we explore some aspect of South African wine. We talk with winemakers, winery owners, and other members of South Africa's vibrant wine industry, and we also give a sommelier a chance to share their impression of the wines. In this episode, we're tipping our hat to Women's History Month by talking with three leading women winemakers and winery owners. It's a conversation that will take us all over the map of the Western Cape, from the dry hills of the Swartland down to the southernmost tip of the African continent.
1: Hi, I'm Samantha O'Keefe. I'm the owner and winemaker of Lismore Estate Vineyards, which you'll find in the wine of origin of Grayton, which is in the cool climate area of South Africa. I am born and raised in Southern California, and I came to South Africa 20 years ago. I bought a farm in an area where no one had ever planted vines before, and now I make about 75,000 bottles. And Grayton, which is the area in which I planted vines, is now an Appalachian or a wine of origin because of me. I discovered Grayton really because I drove down a long, dusty road one day. We weren't necessarily looking for a farm. We were looking for a way that we could build a business and raise a family. And I was invited to look at an old dairy. And we drove up on this farm and there were these rolling slopes and dramatic shale soils and snow on the mountain at that time. And so we checked into the little hotel in the village of Grayton and four days later put an offer on this old dairy. You can imagine when we announced to the local farmers that we were going to plant vineyards in an area that nobody had ever planted vineyards, they thought this young American couple was just ridiculous. They were just dreaming and stupid and it would be over within a couple of years. Well, the marriage was over within a couple of years, but my sons and I stayed and it's been a really amazing difficult at times, but a great adventure. When I bought the farm, it was a muddy old dairy called Lismore Landhood, which is Landhood is estate in Africans. And I'm Samantha O'Keefe. My kids are Keenan and Quinn, which are both Gaelic names, and Lismore is Gaelic for great garden. And so it really felt like it was meant to be for me, Samantha O'Keefe, to have this farm and go on this journey. It's such a beautiful name, great garden. Lismore is an island off of County Waterford in Ireland, which is next to County Cork, where the O'Keefe's come from. So it was really destined to be part of my story. I'd always been passionate about wine. I actually had been working in the television industry in my 20s, but It wasn't necessarily the dream in that moment that we would have a wine farm. We just wanted a farm and a business. But because of the site and the terroir, we could just envision vineyards there. And I called one of the local pioneers here, Peter Finleason, who pioneered Cool Climate Wine in South Africa and said, you don't know me. My name's Samantha O'Keefe and I'm looking at a farm in the mountains of Grayton and why hasn't anyone ever planted vineyards there? And he said, I've always thought it would be a good idea. And if you succeed, you'll be a pioneer. And if you fail, no one will care. And with that, I was like, let's do this then. And so we put an offer in on the farm and we did do an extensive terroir study. I often make it sound like it was just a big naive, splashed into the water. But we did do a lot of research. And within that year, in 2003, 2004, we planted 36,000 vines and we're well on our way.
2: So my name is Trezan Barnard, and I'm the winemaker and owner of Trezan Signature Wines. I started my brand about 2009, and I specifically focus on vineyards that are probably quite polar to each other, but vineyards that are varieties that are very specific to certain areas. I've chosen Yelam, which is a cool climate area, but I focus on specifically Sauvignon Blanc, Semillon, and Syrah from that area. And then I have some Syrah from Swatland, so that's very much warmer climate. But again, fantastic area for Syrah. And then I have a Chardonnay block from Lower Davinswock River, which again is an ideal area for Chardonnay due to the soils out there. So that's my focus areas. I actually didn't know what I wanted to do after school, school meaning high school. And so I actually went abroad and I worked on a kibbutz in Israel. And that actually exposed me to agriculture for the first time. I worked in the lily ponds and, and we bred with koi fish. And funnily enough, a koi fish hatchery is very similar to a winery. You have tanks and you've got, not grapes, but you've got fish. And you've got sorting tables and you're sorting fish, not grapes. So that got me really into agriculture for the first time. And from there, I went to the UK and I lived in London. And I worked in a fine dining restaurant, and that actually exposed me to international wines for the first time. So after two years of working abroad, I decided to come back and study viticulture and oenology, Bachelor in Agriculture at the university. So that's how I got into it. I didn't grow up with any vineyards around me. I, in fact, grew up in the north of South Africa, and our vineyards are basically just in the Western Cape. So I grew up in Gauteng. As a student from first year, I started working in wineries as tasting room salesperson and doing cellar tours, not knowing anything really. But quickly got into the wine industry as a student and then finished my degree, which is a four-year degree. And then from there on, I went back to traveling again and I went to Australia and I did a harvest in Australia. And Margaret River and that actually exposed me to Send, the Sauvignon Glen for the first time which is one of my predominant wines that I make now and then I moved on to France and from there I came back to South Africa and I started as assistant winemaker at King Constantia and then I moved from King Constantia to start up at and had to set up a winery within two months and then we harvested that at the beginning of 2005 it was an incredible learning curve firstly to move back to 100% red wines from working with basically white wines predominantly at Kank Constantia and also Australia and Alsace. But the grapes did the work. When I decided to go on my own, I definitely had the idea of choosing to very kind of polar opposite regions and to express varieties very specific to those regions. Elam did draw me because it was back to cool climate and from the past, having worked in Margaret River, King Constantia and Alsace Working with aromatic whites was where I wanted to be. But it was also luck of the draw. I didn't really know the grapes or the vineyards from that area. It was, okay, we're going to see what we can make from this.
3: Hi, everyone. I'm Jocelyn Hogan-Wilson from Hogan Wines. Hogan is a project that was started in 2014. Um, I had spent 10 years in the industry prior to starting Hogan. And part of that time, that is short sabbatical while having our children, it was very itchy to get back into the industry. And my father approached me in 2013 and said, listen, why don't we start our own project together? And th- that's how it all began, with the 2014 Shinnan, which is from the Swartland, And it's now grown to four different wines, two reds, two whites. And just in terms of winemaking philosophy, producing wines that have a sense of place is probably the most important part of my winemaking. Words like delicacy. Subtlety are very important to me in my wines. Nothing overt, nothing forceful in my winemaking is is what I'm about. I grew up in the Eastern Cape, so a lot of people say, how on earth did you get to wine being so far from the Western Cape? And that's where it always had happened in the past. It was the love for the outdoors, for botany, for soil. I didn't want to be stuck in an office. I knew that from a very young age. I'm quite an active person, and I realized that quite soon. And at 14, I came over to Franciuk and spent some time with a family friend, Mark Kent from Bokkenoetskirff. He's been a wonderful mentor and a, and a great friend over the years. And I spent some time with him in his vineyards and he had just come straight out of Elsenburg and was setting up the farm and was absolutely mesmerized by this concept of soil, getting to work outdoors, And just the people, the buzz around it was just electrifying and decided there and then that's instead set of botany, let's just take it further into something like this where can actually encapsulate the botany and what has happened over the year. I found that just fascinating. So I decided at quite an early age, at 14, that I wanted to study wine. And it was a tricky journey because I was playing a lot of tennis at the time. And that was also part of what I wanted to do in life and was looking at to take it possibly professionally. And it's done a few trips out to the States to go to the training camps in Florida. So it was a difficult decision which way I was going to go but ended up in Texas on a tennis scholarship, but doing BSC agriculture first year. And unfortunately this didn't incorporate wine. And I realized quite soon that I wasn't on the right path. I loved my experience in the States and studying agriculture in another country was great fun, especially Texas. Yeah, And I got badly injured. That's also a part of it. And in 2001, I came back to South Africa and started my BSC in viticulture and analogy here in Stellenbosch and, just haven't looked back. It was a a great decision, a really, really fantastic four years at at the uni. And I've been in the industry ever since. It's been a really cool journey so far. The first wine, just was looking at maps. Basically, I realized I needed to find cooler slopes in the Swatland because I want to go through full mellow and still have a good pH and good acidity. So to find that particular aspect wasn't easy. So it was some viticultural friends who helped me out in finding a particular farm. And at the time, the grapes went 100% to the carp. And now the farm is maybe 90% independent. And the farm is being paid exceptionally well. It's it's a win-win for everybody. So that's from one farm in Swatland And I'm so passionate about this particular farm. I, I love the decomposed granite soils. And they have an array of soils in the Swatland, But it, it's just something that's just so crystalline, translucent, pure about the granite soils that I just love. So I've stuck with that and with my gut in terms of the style of shin and I prefer. Natural fermentation on all the wines, whole bunch pressing. I just try to keep it as simple as possible. A key component in bringing grapes in from the Swartland is temperature control for me because I'm, I'm not adding sulfur at pressing. The first sulfur the wine will see will be straight after mallow. That's about July. So very oxidative, for the process. So as the grapes come in in first week of Feb, they go straight into a cold room. Fortunately, with my husband being in the food industry, I have access to a lot of cooling. So we'll cool the grapes down to about eight degrees. For me, that's a vital part of the whole chain of getting the grapes pressed and into barrelful ferment. And after the whole bunch pressing, it will go through a 21 day natural ferment, approximately 21 day, if if you're lucky and all's going well. And then we top the barrels up, it goes through natural mallow. And in total spends um, 10 to 11 months on the groceries. I don't rack the wine. I stir as little as possible. Very slow autolysis, not interfering too much. And then just before bottling, we rack and it will spend about a month in tank, getting it stable and ready for bottling. Bottle around January and release towards the end of that next year. So I had this intention to make this Cab-Sinzo blend inspired by the 60s and the 70s. I love the wines from the 60s and the 70s in South Africa that were made from Cabernet, but would always have up to 50% Sinzo in them. In those days, the legislation didn't require that you (laughs) needed to declare up to 50% Sinzo, which is quite phenomenal, but that's how it was. I just love how the Cinzo takes the edge off the cab. Never in dominance. I, I, I wouldn't go beyond 20, 30% of Cinzo. I and mean, 50 was pushing it a bit, but they still produce beautiful wines. They really did. And these wines of about 12% alcohol to pick cab at, at 12 to 13% alcohol and to not find greenness. It's, it's a challenge, but there are vineyards that can achieve it. So I found a fantastic block in, in the Polka Dry, a, a farm called Curry Bib, a very passionate farmer, and we work extensively together. And then the Cinzo component I had found from the Helderberg. as a 45-year-old bush finds, absolutely stunning. Then I attended the Swatland Revolution in 2014. That was November. And Serge Hosha was the, the main speaker for the event. I'd never met him before. I knew very little about Chateau Moussa and was just completely blown away by the whole experience and testing six of his vintages. And he, he basically just got up and spoke for three hours about it life stories and the woman he met (laughs) all his fun experiences in life that that involved wine and spoke very little about the wines they were in front of us and we just enjoyed them and right at the end he disclosed that his blend was Cabernet Sauvignon, Cinso and Carignan and strangely a family friend They've been calling me for 10 years and, and said, Joss, you have to get involved with Carignan. It's the most phenomenal variety. His name's Alex. I said, well, Alex, I have no idea what I'm going to do with Carignan. I'm making wine for an estate brand and they're not interested. And so he made a, a rosé out of it and did a very good job of it. And, and all of a sudden, after Serge saying that the Carignan component, and I'm intending to make this cab, and Sinzo blend, it was like, wow, okay, this, someone's been banging on about Carignan for years and now all of a sudden there's a space for it. So the ran off and went to go get hold of the Carignan. That was the 2015 vintage. And so vinified the components separately. I wasn't certain how it was going to all work out. And right about June, July, after Mallow, and um, racked the wines back to barrel. August, September, started blending, made up my 50-50 cab, the Cinzo blend, and looked lovely, and then played with adding the Carignan up to a third and was blown away by the component it brought to the blend. It's quite hard to describe, like a, a feral, wild component that Caranian brings. You can't quite put your finger on that. And lovely dark, dark fruits of black morello cherries, Middle Eastern spices. I, I pick up beautiful sumac in the Caranian component that I just adore. And it makes it something completely different. And No one else is producing a blend like that in South Africa. I've just enjoyed the journey of making it, and, and hence Divergent, the name, uh, completely diverging path that I felt I had very little control over but it's been great it really has further to that sadly Serge passed away in the December of 2014 and it was all just so weird the the experience of meeting him in the November him passing away and just him being such a huge influence or a tipping point in my career meeting this gentleman and how much he inspired me in, in my winemaking. And I wrote to the family when I had decided just this blend is, is fabulous and I'd love to bottle it. And I asked if they would mind if I could pay homage to Serge on the back label. And they didn't respond for a few weeks. And I thought, oh goodness, maybe it's not appropriate or too soon. And it was, it was Rolf who wrote back to me and said, no, we think this is absolutely fabulous. We support you completely. And so tough that Serge inspired you. And I think it was possibly the last tasting he could have given and they said, no, but, but please, will you um, send a case to London every now and then so we can keep tabs on what's going on and what you're doing? And and they've been very generous. I'm with the same importer as Chateau Mazar, Broadbent. And we we're supposed to, I was supposed to be traveling in October with Mark Osher, um, doing a bit of a road trip with him, which was exceptionally generous of him to allow me to tag along and, and be a part of his trip. But sadly, obviously, with COVID, that didn't happen. So hopefully we could do that at a later stage. It would be wonderful. And constantly experimenting with stuff. I'm far too itchy <laughs> to ever quite sit still, but I obviously don't want to extend the range too far and I've got to maintain focus. But there's a, a Chardonnay that I produced in 2018. I wanted to add on a, a second white and uh, had some great success with a uh, Chardonnay while I was working at Le Brie in Franschhoek. And, and so that was the second grape after Shin & Really Pulls Up My Heartstrings. So it wasn't certain exactly where I was going to take grapes from. So I sourced from a few different sites and the blend ended up coming from Banock, 20% from Banock, 40% from Kaiman's which is an incredible site. It's just outside of Hrebeau and 700 meters above sea level, beautiful crystalline freshness to the blend. And then lastly, Carrie Farm, which is in Polkadrai, a component of structure and, and richness that I, I get from that component and the focus here is subtle to you. There's nothing overt in the Chardonnay. More of an aperitif style shard that you'd kick off your evening with. Treated very similarly to how I treated the Chenin. Uh, going through the full Mallow, there's something with Mallow that I just find it very difficult to stop the process. It wants to happen. It's a biochemistry reaction that wants to happen within the, the wine. You stop it, you've got to hit the wine hard with sulfur, you got to filter it a lot. And I just don't feel right doing that. Anyway, the Chard's been great. Lovely to have a second white in my range as well. My second red is a Cabernet Franc that I source from the lower Helderberg, very close to where I source my Cinzo for a divergent blend. It is a 16-year-old trellised vines on granite as well, a lot of granite in that lower Helderberg section. And a Loire-inspired beautiful, beautiful, fresh red fruit that comes from this vineyard. And I handle it very delicately in the cellar. No stems. It's squeaky clean at the stemming. And because the grapes go into a cauldron at eight degrees overnight, the wines tend to have a bit of a cold soak for two or three days before the natural ferment kicks in. Handled very delicately in the cellar, Um, only two punch downs a day. That's a philosophy of mine. I'm not keen on pump overs. I find the extraction a little bit too heavy. And two weeks on the skins, pressed to barrel and spends 10 months in older French oak, bottled at the end of the year and then released 10 months later. I would love to plant some Cabernet Franc and Chardonnay here in the Bannock. Also thinking about a little bit of Gamay. I've been chatting to Alex Dale quite a bit about getting material. He's bored in material and the variety I think I could do very well in South Africa. Valera have made a fantastic example and Alex Dale's the other one. And I think it could be suited to our climate and there aren't many people playing with the varietal. So that's another project that we're considering. And possibly to develop our own small cellar here on the farm, a long-term project here.
1: In South Africa, we have a bigger region, which is now called the Cape South Coast. Vineyards here are not much older than about 40 years because nobody had planted out here before. And in the last, I'd say, 20 years, people are going into more extreme regions, more extreme sites, and really pioneering or experimenting with cool climate wines. One of my passions is to spread the word about South Africa that we have very diverse terroir, and we do have very cool sites. And so in 2003, Appalachians such as Elgin and Stanford and Elam, more of the Harder Valley, they were all planting and expanding at that time. And I just happened to be up there at the top of the mountain by myself in Grayton. Grayton is a continental climate. I'm at 325 meters above sea level. It snows in the winter. We have significant summer rainfall. And we have warmer days, not hot, never over 40 degrees Celsius. But we have warmer days, but very cold nights because of its proximity to that mountain. And so it grows really beautiful, concentrated, fresh, cool climate ones. An interesting thing about Grayton actually, is that the predominant weather pattern of South Africa it, that's driving during the summer is the southeast wind. And a lot of producers talk about it. The southeast wind actually brings me rain. So I don't really suffer from the southeast wind. We do get a lot of wind in the winter. But it doesn't really affect me. If anything, the heavy effect is that I have significant summer rainfall, which obviously then I'm constantly worried about pressure from mold and mildew. But Terroir City that I mentioned basically told us that we would have quite a low ripening temperature, that we had these steep shale slopes. We did satellite surveys and aspect and sunlight hours on the various blocks. But if you looked at this research, what you saw was a cool climate, but you also saw the Northern Rhone. And in 2003, the Northern Rhone wasn't trendy. Bordeaux was trendy. And so we didn't quite know what to do with that information. So we planted a little bit of Sauvignon because that was what was in fashion. We planted quite a bit of Chardonnay because we were from California. And we planted Syrah and Viognier because on paper, our farm and our site looked very much like the Northern Rhone. And actually, in retrospect, all these years later, it's the Syrah and the Vignette that have the most distinctive terroir expression and that have really helped put Lismore on the map. I'm asked, how did I learn to make wine all the time? And, and I feel a bit sheepish to say that I really learned on the job. Um, it definitely is one of the don't mess it up situations. But within a couple of years of this story, I found myself alone with my two kids. I was a single mom in the middle of nowhere. And I really was learning as I go. I didn't have any institutional knowledge around me. There weren't neighbors who experienced vintages like this and had an idea of what to do. And so I've found that the viticulture has been the greatest challenge in this journey. And the guys in the Himalayan Order Valley have been right there with me. Peter Finlayson and Kevin Grant, a man called Gavin Patterson, who was the winemaker at Sumer Ridge back then. If they didn't experience something like that, they at least helped me figure it out. They were very generous with their help and advice and really were role models that set the style for Lisbon wines, especially the Chardonnay. I do make wine in a very traditional way, but I have been doing it for 16 years now. What I can really appreciate is that the vineyards that I planted grew world-class fruit, and that has really helped me create world-class wine. South Africa had a sustained six-year drought, but because I'm up there with my own microclimate, it was hit and miss for me. And some of the years during those six years were really good for me in Grayton. And the Cape South Coast region, for example, had a fantastic vintage in 2016. But in 2015, in particular, the drought hit me very hard. And I don't irrigate, I dry land farm. And so I had no way of mitigating it. And in 2015, for the first time, I started going to my neighbors in the bigger region to Elgin and to the Himalayan Valley and Walker Bay and finding beautiful vineyards and new sites so that I could keep my production up. And so the five core Lismore wines are now blends from the Cape South Coast region. And the estate reserve wines are the showcase for my terroir for my site. When I think about my wines and the style of wine that I make, one that I love to point to immediately is the Bell Fermented Sauvignon. It's handled oxidatively at the juice phase. It's fermented and aged in larger oak, 500 liter barrels, and 30% in concrete eggs. It's really a textured wine. It's very outside the box for the new world. And it's one that I think is definitely one of my favorites to make. It surprises everyone when they taste it because it's just so delicious. And so not New World Sauvignon. So it's a very special one. And if anyone can get their hands on it, I think they should try it. If you look at my Chardonnays, they're really the epitome of my terroir and my site. The Chardonnay is dryland farmed on shale and I get very low yields with super concentration. The standard Lisbon Chardonnay is naturally fermented and aged in 300 liter neutral barrels. So while it's barrel fermented, it's rich, it's concentrated, it's complex, It also doesn't have any overt oak or butter. It's really a special wine with this long kind of marmalade citrus finish. And then you jump to the Estate Reserve Chardonnay, which I moved to 500 liter barrels. So larger format, less surface area, but with 30% new oak. And it's got this really sexy charred lime character to it. It's voluptuous. It's big, but it's also fresh and restrained. I'm very proud of that wine. I'm really passionate about Cool Climate Syrup. I work a lot with Whole Bunch. And so you have this bright red fruit with floral elements and a little bit of herbal complexity and lots of texture, but lots of freshness. It's very surprising for what people expect to come out of South Africa. And I'm really excited about what I'm doing in these last couple of vintages with the Lismar Syrah and the Estate Reserve Syrah.
0: Trezan focuses on Elam the most southerly wine ward in South Africa and an area which only saw its first vineyards at the end of the 1990s, not long before Samantha planted her first vines in Creighton.
2: The land out there, it's so vast, such a different energy. It's these beautiful open plains and then it's harsh. It's harsh conditions out there. The wind is ruthless out there. You've got these two massive ocean masses, the Indian and the Atlantic Ocean. And just having those ocean masses around you is incredible microclimate there. So it's not easy farming out there. And I think the people from that area, they're really people from the earth. They're soil people. They're people from the heart. And I think I fell in love with the area, but also with the people from there and how the farmers, there's a Afrikaans term, "fuss bait and it have got to hang in there. And I think Elam grew on me over the years. It's just become an area that I have such an affinity for. And the wines show it. You can see that there's so much intensity in the wines. There's so much complexity in the wines. And it almost reflects the hardship that those grapes are going through during the ripening period. I think Sauvignon can handle stress, but can handle wind. Somebody once said to me, if a Sauvignon Blanc block can see the ocean, it's a great block. Now the Elam Wines can't exactly see the ocean, but it's 18 kilometers as the crow flies to the most southern tip of Africa. So it's very close. And I think the soils there, we've got deep decomposed granite, and then we've got these ferricrete. So it's loaded with iron oxide. And I just think the combination of the microclimate, the soils, really suit Sauvignon and Semillon specifically very well. 85% of the plantings out there is Sauvignon. And because it's a cooler climate, you also get a much longer ripening period and you don't have these incredible heat spikes. Your flavor profile is so intense and Sauvignon doesn't lose its flavors because of one heat spell that we get out there. It's like this long ripening period, which is great for the Sauvignon to develop its flavors. I blend my Sauvignon and my Simeon together. I harvest them obviously separately and I ferment them separately. I hold a bunch press, both of the parcels and then straight to barrel. And I find that it's very classic Bordeaux. The Sauvignon has got the aromatics and also the lively acidity, whereas the Semillon's aromatics actually complements the Sauvignon. They're not worlds apart. They actually have similar kind of herbal flavors. But the semion has this beautiful backbone. It's more fleshy. It's more waxy. It doesn't have that piercing acid. So the two together blend so well. And then I find that the semion just gives it the longevity to age in the bottle and then it really, it waxes out and it just it's so much more complexity comes with time in the bottle. So I just do think that those two varieties suit each other tremendously. I did one year ask my French bosses at the time if I could do a harvest in their own and I did a harvest with Jean-Louis Charve. So I did get a bit of Shiraz, <laughs> a bit of Shiraz experience. But you look at the grape. And you realize, if I look at a cab grape, Merlot, cab, or any border variety grape, and you look at the skin, and you realize it's leathery, it's quite thick, and you work very differently with those grapes versus the Shiraz grape. I quickly pick that up. With Shiraz, thin skin. It's really not leathery or anything. So for me, you look at the grape and you see, okay, well, definitely it's got to work differently. So with cab, you extract, and it's a lot of pump-overs, and you really work the grape. Whereas with the Shiraz, very gentle, very light. So I think basically the grapes just gave me some guidance as to how I'm going to go about. And I think with time, I realized the style of wine that I actually like drinking is more the lighter style of wines. Lighter in alcohol, lighter in wood, and obviously then lighter extracted as well. And so I just adjusted my winemaking techniques into what I would like to drink one day. So (laughs) that's basically how I did it. In 2009, I also started out with the Swatland Syrah, but I soon also realized that a lot of people came out of the Swatland back then. There were a lot of incredible winemakers out there. And I think you had to really invest in the Swatland with a lot of time. And I grew more towards the Elam area. Although I kept my Swatland Syrah, and I think it's very much part of my portfolio all these years, but I then discovered this Elam Syrah, And I just realized, wow, this is beautiful, cool climate, Syrah. And I think there should be a lot more emphasis on what we can do as a cool climate with Syrah. I think there's been a lot of attention on the Swatland Syrah and those winemakers have done such good justice for the Swatland and for South Africa. But I do think... There's a lot of merit in our cool climate syrup, and Yellum is one of the areas that can really grow beautiful syrup. It took a while to figure out how to, number one, grow the vines, that the farmers are doing that, but also how to treat the wine coming from there. And what I did in the beginning that was completely wrong because I was taking my head from Swartland into Yellum was picking extremely ripe. And, and I realized then after a few years that I'm creating very big, Shirazes from a cool climate area. And that was almost like, shouldn't fit in the same sentence. And then one year I went in the vineyards and I picked blindly. So I didn't back myself up with any analysis. So I just went on what I tasted. So basically just on phenolic ripeness. And then I brought those grapes into the winery and it was a crazy year. So I couldn't, even when I, started fermenting. I didn't take sugars or anything. It was only after ferment I took an alcohol analysis and I realized, oh my goodness, I'm one and a half degrees lower in alcohol than I usually am. And then I wondered, did I make the biggest mistake of my life? Did I actually pick unripe? Then I actually realized I've done, for the first time I've done it, i got it. I didn't pick with analysis. So I actually picked with what I tasted. And in doing so, I actually preserved the flavors of cool climate. So that real beautiful white pepper spice. For the first time, that was so apparent. It wasn't overly extracted or jammy or anything like that. It was that beautiful, classy, spicy fruit. And then the lights went on for me and I realized, okay, of course you're working with cool climate Shiraz here. You can't pick the same. can't expect the same from your Swatland and your Elam Shiraz. It's so different. So just going on texture, I think your Swatland Shiraz has a very typical grainy tannin, which is such a telltale sign for me is that grain that you have in the tannin. And when it comes to Elam Shiraz, you have that silky tannin. You don't have the graininess on it. And then the fruit profiles are obviously it's quite different as well. You've got the more dark, broody fruit on the Svartland side and the more red, bright fruit with that underlying spice on the yellow fruit. I love working with both because in my wine making style, there's not a lot of difference. Picking is different. Area is different. And the wines are so different. And that's just the beauty of wine when you're making wine from various areas. But Varieties that actually suit an area, even though it could be cold or warm climate, it, it brings out the character and nuances of the variety. In
0: 2018, Trezan added another region to her portfolio, Sundaiksklof. There, she's working once more with Sauvignon Blanc, but the winemaking went in a different direction.
2: It was en route to Elam, and again at cool Climate. And Wade from Brunia actually contacted me and he said, listen, I've got some Sauvignon. Would I be interested? And at the time I was like, oh, goodness, I can't make another Sauvignon. But I was very interested to see the vineyards. And so I went out there and sure, it's a beautiful area. It's really stunning. I saw is just beyond Stanford. And I wasn't even aware of that ward out there. So when I saw the Sauvignon, there was definitely similarities to Elam, but I think it's just clonal. Similar clones are planted there. But I was fascinated with this vineyard. I think I was lucky also because the first time I made the was in 2018. And the farm that I bought from were converting to biodynamics. And it was a healthy year for them. So I really got beautiful grapes from there. And then in the winery, when the grapes come in, I just decided, listen, I can't make another Sauvignon. Like I make all my Sauvignons, because what am I doing? Where am I going to find a market for this? So I decided to... Completely flip it on its head. So the half of it, I whole bunch pressed as I would normally do with my stem or my barrel fermented sauvignon, whole bunch pressed and went straight to barrel and naturally fermented. And the other half, I actually crushed and destemmed stemmed and fermented on skins, exactly like a red wine. So fermented, warm, all natural. I did punch downs once or twice a day and left it on the skins until it was dry. So probably about two weeks. And then I basket pressed that, so very oxidative. With the idea that I'm now also going to be cool at making a like orange wine or what, what, what. It never came out as orange, it's like bright as a diamond. <laughs> like, what I did is also, I never really used new oak, so. I put the skin ferment into new oak because I just thought, okay, well, I've extracted so much phenolics that it's definitely going to bind with the tannins from the wood. It's in the clap barrel, so it's not toasted with fire. It's toasted with ceramics. So you don't have that kind of guillacal, toasty aromas, which I don't want. Definitely not with Sauvignon. So I was very skeptical of using new oak, but then this barrel just worked perfectly. I eventually put the two parcels together and I was so surprised. At first, I wasn't keen to show it to anyone because it was a completely different aromatic profile than I'm used to. Like, I had it in the back pocket. And then Ternatkin actually came around to South Africa and it was the last wine I said to him, oh, well, by the way, I've got this wine. And he loved wine, and I was so surprised. I was not even think I was going to label this wine. But he was really interested in the wine, and then he rated the wine well. And the wine has since then developed really beautifully. So was really by chance, and I was unfortunate not to get the grapes in 2019. But then I could get grapes again in 2020. And also, I bottled it now in December. I haven't released it, but I'm very happy. I made it in exactly the same style I half of um, skin ferment and barrel ferments, and i don't know to this day if what i'm getting it's obviously a combination of winemaking and grapes but i still don't know exactly what i'm getting from just the of vineyard because i'm obviously manipulating quite a bit in the cellar like i'm making it very different to what i would normally make it so it's hard to know what it is that makes that wine so interesting is it the vineyard's or is it what I'm doing in the winery? Whereas normally I know it's the vineyards. It's the vineyards that's giving this to me. But I think because there's a bit of hands footwork work in the cellar, which I normally never do, I normally let the grapes just do its thing. and I don't influence too much. You know, I just guide. But I'm very specific as to what I'm doing with this wine.
0: As we've heard, Jocelyn, Samantha, and Trezan all favor a hands-off winemaking approach. But Trezan is not alone in playing with some different approaches and tools in the cellar.
3: So I'm very pro wooden vats, two to fives and three hundreds. I've played with some concrete over the years, but there's something fantastic about the isolation of a two to five liter vessel. That it ferment's going in a different direction, the wood plays a, a different role. I just I love the pick and choose uh, component of breaking that eight tons that I get into smaller portions. I normally pick three to four times. I find far more complexity and layering that one gets out of those. It's a lot of work, but it pays off. Having pressure acidity from that first pick and more voluptuousness from the last picks. I love playing that way, and wood has always worked for me. There is a Solera barrel going on. It was not deliberate. <laughs> Solera barrel of, of Shinnan that I, I didn't know what it was going to do with it. It's a combination of 18, 19, and 20, and absolutely adore this concept. We're going to bottle it at the end of this year and, and see how it goes. It's looking absolutely stunning. It's mostly from my earlier picking portion, so like a pH of 3.1, Super fresh. I think that's what's kept the longevity of the wine. And we'll see what happens with it. The other experiment is a bit of flaw that I'm playing with on my shinin. Some beticus in there, and we'll see what happens there. It'll probably only be a small percentage, like 30% I'd add in to the rest of my shinin. I find it quite domineering, the the characteristic, but in a smaller proportion, I I quite enjoy it. Uh, Samantha Sardins is also playing around with it. She's inspired a lot of us to get going with it. I think Ardis is a, a souvenir, if I'm correct, that he ages under floor. A couple of people also looking at Chardonnay, so something exciting. You've got to have things going on. My mind just cannot stay stagnant. I've got to keep trying and testing. And uh, the lovely thing about what we do is that we can never stop learning. It's probably the biggest drawcard in, in wine for me.
0: One of the most remarkable virtues of the South African winemaker community is an openness and willingness to share, be it ideas, cellar space, or even grapes. That's true when things are going well, as well as when one of their number faces troubling times.
3: I don't own my own cellar space. There's a similar model for a lot of the the small independents, where we source our grapes in, we rent cellar space. It's a way to get a brand out faster and get access to market. So I'm a fantastic seller just across the way from where my husband and I farm. And just a bit of background there. We farm plums, pears, apples, and proteas, all for export. And Hogan Wines is my business, and that's his side of, of his family uh, incorporated in the fruit. So I needed to find cellar space, and Zorgfleet Winery, just across the way from us, they probably about a kilometer from our farm, I rent space from them, and share the space with a fantastic winemaker, Jenny Povel from Botanica Brand. So the two of us are in the back corner of the cellar. We have a fabulous time together over Harvest, and great people at Zorgfleet. Nice to work with. It's been a good experience. It works really well. The nomadic concepts was so great, you know, seeing different winemakers coming and going and comparing. How do you think about this ferment? How is this progressing? And it's it's great fun. I I just think the energy of the industry and just discovering these incredible parcels of fruit and everyone just being so excited about it and being able to gain access to this fruit. You can't contain that excitement. And we just want to share, help each other. Sometimes some blocks are so big that we just cannot take them on alone. I have a block of Cinzo that I'm working with a a guy, Bernard Bradell, there. They call him the rain man <laughs> of our <laughs> industries. He's a super guy and just so passionate about soil health and his cover crops, no-till and herbicides. So it's a particular block of Cinza I share with Bernard and Christy LaRiche. And under Burden's guidance, we, we're doing some great stuff there in the Helderberg. All of us independents are doing what we can to try and help the farmer, farm as sustainably as possible. If it means paying a bit extra to get extra labor in or... Better cover crops. We're working quite extensively on that. So it's been a, a wonderful journey working with other winemakers and sharing blocks. And I think Swatland Revolution, they had a lot to do with that in guiding and channeling that energy and getting everyone on board. It's a great time to be in the industry and that excitement still continues, I find, and how the quality just keeps
1: improving year on year. So there I was after 14 years of pioneering this wine region, growing this brand and I was on top of the world at the end of 2017 a wine advocate named me one of the top 10 wine discoveries of the year. My estate reserve Syrah was Neil Martin's for Venice red wine of the year and things were really going great. And then on the 17th of December, a bushfire, which had been burning in the mountains for seven days, the wind turned and it came down on top of Lismore and my cellar, my 2019 vintage and my home and everything that I had and about 40% of the vineyards were destroyed. And so you can imagine what a shock it was. And it was right before Christmas and as South Africa is heading into harvest and the South African wine industry before the day had even ended had started putting together things for me from barrels to grapes to cellar space they all were contacting each other trying to contact me but you can imagine that I wasn't really contactable and one of my colleagues Alex Dale from Radford Dell appointed himself as the point person and he started collecting the spreadsheet and being the guy to go to if he wanted to help Lismore. and within three weeks the South African wine industry had basically put my harvest together for me I was in such shock. I was trying to figure out where I was going to stay and what I was going to do. And I just lost an entire vintage. I, I don't think in three weeks I would have been able to put together a vintage, let alone find 300 older barrels to make the style of wine that I do You need a lot of older wood. And effectively, this industry that has adopted me came up with, Grapes from all over South Africa, the top vineyards from all over South Africa, barrels, transport, services, money, five different sellers. I was offered probably 20 different sellers, but in the end, my grapes were in five different sellers. And by April, I produced 150 tons, and I was on my way to rebuilding. And even though I wasn't physically rebuilding, obviously, this was all delayed very much because of the COVID crisis, but I was rebuilding because I had a vintage. And... I could not have done that on my own. I couldn't even have begun to do it on my own. And I really felt just pushed forward by this wave of love and support. And, you know, at one point I woke up and I thought, after the fire, why don't I just disappear? And the reality is that they weren't letting me. The wine industry was in no way going to let this get me down and make it end. So here I am. I sit on the other end of that, I'm bottling the 2020 wines. I'm in the process of rebuilding the cellar. It should be done soon. I hope to harvest 2021 in my own cellar again. And the house, it'll take a very long time for that to happen. And I'm planting six hectares. So it's been a very emotional and overwhelming experience to have so many people care and love and support and to uplift me in the way that they did. And it will really be in for the history of Lismore and the history of the South African wine industry of how they came together at this time.
0: We always like to conclude with a stateside perspective on South African wines. And this time I've turned to Suzanne Hopfweig, who owns the only South African wine bar in New York City on the Upper East Side, Kaya Wine Bar. And Suzanne has been selling South African wine to Americans for a long time. Suzanne, how are you?
4: I'm good, Jim. How are you?
0: Good, thanks. Thanks for joining us.
4: Oh, you're welcome.
0: Now, when you first started Kaya and you started really pitching South African wines to Americans, what sort of reactions did you get?
4: This was now in 2011, so almost 10 years ago. It's changed a lot. Just the amount of volume of different wines that we're able to get is completely different today what it was back then. Kaya has been busy pretty much from the very first day. We had a line out the door, so there was definitely an interest, and people knew they were coming to a South African joint. So it wasn't such a stretch for me that I thought it was going to be. People were very curious. They were aware and they wanted to know more. So it wasn't such a hard sell. It was more difficult for me to find variety. In varietals that I could offer on my wine list. So when I opened the restaurant, I did South African wines and peppered it in with a bunch of New World wines as well, because I was afraid that if I were just going to be 100% South African, I didn't trust that people would come. And about two years in, I just decided I'm about to apply for a full liquor license. So I'm just going to get rid of all the New World wines and I'm going to start with just a South African wine list. So back then it was only about 10, maybe 12 South African wines on my list to today over 60, sometimes up to 70 South African wines. But everything is by the glass. We don't have that traditional wine list of a couple just by the glass and the rest, the heavier, by the bottle. So I think that definitely helped because my philosophy has always been the more you can have somebody taste during their meal or their dinner, the more they're going to Be curious about what else is out there next.
0: Are there particular stories or aspects of South African wine that you find your customers most respond to?
4: It has definitely shifted. So I would say earlier in Kaya's history, it was a lot of interest in just simple single varietals like Chenin Blanc or Chardonnay. I did notice very early on that the American palette, at least on the Upper East Side, because that's the bulk of our guests, it shifted away from the overly oaky Chardonnay to the more steel barrel, fresher, linear mineral style. Same thing with the Chenins. My biggest growth has been in the Sauvignon Blanc and the Rosé section actually, which is very interesting to me because when I go home to South Africa, rosé is not really a thing (laughs) at home. But in the US, especially in the last five years or so, that sort of fresher, brighter, mineralier, Rhone-style South African rosé, people ask for it all year through. But Sauvignon Blanc has definitely been the one that's been paying my bills. I have between five and six Sauvignon Blancs by the glass on the list. I try to highlight different parts of South Africa in different winemaking styles so that there's balance on the list. And if Mm -hmm. somebody is an enophile, comes into the restaurant and has a nice meal, and they are into Chenin Blancs or into Sauvignon Blancs, that they have more than one style that they can taste. So that has been interesting to me. And also in the earlier parts of Kaya's background, I didn't like putting any Pinotage on because people were just, Pinotage is not good. It's not this. It's definitely that preconceived notion. So I had to be very careful of Pinotage and what I choose as a Pinotage to put on the list. I want to introduce them to what the new and the younger guns are doing in South Africa. That more linear, again, mineral style. Just Mm -hmm. so that... If there's an opportunity to re-educate or there's an opportunity to get somebody to maybe open their horizon to taste new and fresher style of winemaking, quality, smaller batched wines, I have a vehicle to do that. So I wanted to highlight that. So then slowly but surely, I started to add a little bit more pinotage to the list, but I curated it. And then interestingly enough, in the last two years or so, I find it fascinating that other wine bars have such a hard time selling Syrah. That's the easiest sell for us. Sure. We sell a ton of Syrah, a ton of Syrah blends or just a hundred percent Syrah styles. I am really struggling to find older vintages. That's another big thing mm. that I had an importer about two years ago that had a bunch of old wines and I just bought all of them. And It became so popular that I had to invest in new glassware and proper glassware to highlight these beautiful wines. And I had to buy a bunch of very expensive Durans to get the corks out properly because it was just breaking. And it's sad that I can't find that many old vintages in the U.S. I would love to be able to find more and showcase that. But I'm lucky. I'm lucky that I'm in an environment where people know who we are. They know what we do. Mm-hmm. And they come specifically for that. And it's word of mouth. And Jim, I don't know if you remember, but Mr. Wright is that very big wine liquor store block yep, and a half yeah. away from us. Yep. And when we started, they only had one importer of South African wines basically on their shelves. Mm-hmm. Today... They are pretty much toe to toe with us, and people come to the wine bar, they drink a South African wine, and they go to Mr. Rice like, "Oh, we had this wine, the South African wine bar." So it's so interesting to me because there's such a rugby hatred between Australians and (laughs) Africans, (laughs) and the owners of Mr. Rice are Australian. So a big part of it was we're not putting South African on our list, and today they have no choice because this is. So that's the lovely thing about having this wine bar is that I am able to change a whole neighborhood's perception of South Africa. And it's just a lovely legacy, I feel like, if I can toot my own horn a little bit, Mm -hmm. that I've left in that neighborhood, that if it wasn't for Kaya, there wouldn't be such a groundswell of support at the local liquor stores.
0: That's great. In this episode, we're focusing on women winemakers. And when you talk about introducing newer, more boutique brands, a lot of these brands actually are owned and run by women. Before we dive into the wines, is there something you see as a common thread between the stories of many of these women who are getting behind wine brands in South Africa?
4: Besides that, a lot of them are American women who now live in South Africa.
0: <laughs> that is a thing. <laughs> it's
4: an interesting juxtaposition. Besides that thread, Okay, so I have to say I've never actually met Jocelyn or Samantha, but I am just great admirers of both of their stuff. I've known Ginny pretty much since Kaya. Open. The big mm. flower, that beautiful old label that they had, I still have some 08 sitting on my top shelf there at the restaurant. The other winemaker that's not part of this tasting profile, that one that we've always had on our list on some capacities in Siki. So I've always had a soft spot for the women sisters and wine on the list. And if I had an opportunity I would put them on the list. And it's lovely to see the wine move. As far as these women are concerned, I am just struck by the singular focus of a lot of these wines, whether it's just the gorgeous Chenin Blanc from Hogan. To me, that's just class in a bottle. I'm surprised at what emotions it brings up in me when I taste any great bottle. But it's a specific thing for me as a female, knowing that that woman is not making wine because she's a female winemaker. She's making wine because she is a winemaker. And You have to be wary and also aware of sometimes putting labels on the wine when you speak of it saying, oh, but this is a female winemaker. I don't think I would appreciate saying, oh, but this is a female winemaker. I think it's just I'm a damn good winemaker. And this is a thread in all three of these wines we are going to talk about today. So I just have the greatest respect for these women, and especially for Samantha with the loss of the big part of her wine farm. which is just shocking. It's also such a beautiful part of the country where Lismore Mm -hmm. is.
0: So you tasted the Lismore Syrah. As you've told us, you don't have a problem selling Syrah at Kaya. Is this the sort of Syrah your guests are looking for?
4: Yes. So this is that change that's been happening from that sort of earlier parts of just drink whatever we have to asking for more specific styles of wine to now that like straight clean linear very balanced oak not a lot of new oak expressions necessarily when you open the list more it's all this sort of really barnyardy thing coming at you but when you drink that wine it's such a straight linear clean elegant wine that I'm very surprised sometimes when that happens you don't expect something that smells so deep and rich to be so clean also What's important about this is that these wines can be aged for years. So just the value of what's in that list war over the next 5, 10, 20 years is exciting to me. So it'd be interesting to see what that wine's going to do, sell mm-hmm. correctly. But Hogan, one of the top five or 10 wines I've tasted this year out of South African is that Hogan Shannon. It's bush wine. I think the bush wine is around 40 years old. So it's all these like gnarly little bush wine. So you imagine it already coming at you and there's just this lovely sort of caramelized banana note in the palate. So i like a buttery caramel coming at you. And it's just a wonderful, beautiful round mouth feel She captured that grape at the right moment, at the right time. And it's just a gorgeous Chenin Blanc, old vine. Immediately when you open that wine, this is South African. This is typical South African terroir Chenin. And it's just an exciting wine. And it's going to change. That wine is going to have a different aspect to it in a year or two. But honestly... I'm again somebody who likes to drink old vintages and this wine can age for sure. But if you want to drink something right now, go out and go get this Hogan. It's just fabulous.
0: Mm-hmm. So I think our final wine then is your old standby, Jenny uh, Povell's wines. This is right. Arboretum blend.
4: This is a Bordeaux blend. Yes. yes. Uh, mostly Cabernet, I think in this vintage. I think I think so. also taste, yeah, mm-hmm. I was surprised. I'm not a fan of a lot of Bordeaux, but I was surprised how much I liked this guy. Again, it can sit in that bottle for a bunch of years, but this was completely different than the Lismore. You have more of that sort of like fruit-forward qualities to it. It's a lighter Bordeaux style for me. I think it's just a lovely sipping wine in general. You don't need food with it. It's just a sit-by-the-fire and drink wine but it has a beautiful black feel to it and I enjoy that expression in wine you can drink mm-hmm. and keep drinking and not get tired of those lovely little fruity notes that it brings to you. But it still has some pepper and some backbone to it. For me, Ginny can't do anything wrong. Americans still drink a lot of Bordeaux wines. They just do. And it's always interesting to me when I go to Mr. Wright and I see a $75 bottle of Bordeaux next to a South African, say, 45 bottle. And I know that South African is better more often than not, the American is going to go for the $75 bottle of wine. That's of lesser quality. And if I can just hammer it into an American's mind, try that $45 bottle. Try that $25 bottle.
0: What what I'm hearing on, on all three of these wines from you is this combination of either generosity or texture and weight or just complexity of flavor, but then balanced with purity and freshness.
4: Agreed. Pretty much all three of them have that in common, I would say. The trajectory of all of these women, like I've just, I know Ginny obviously more intimately, but the other two women, I'm very excited to see their trajectory over the next ten, twenty 20 years. All three of them are groundbreaking for what they're able to do. And then there's other women we can add to this fray, but I'm very excited to see what Jocelyn in particular is going to do. I'm excited what the Lismore is going to age like in 10, 20 years. You all can come and buy it from me in 10, 20 years. <laughs> but, and then Ginny is just, a great gal, and people should just run for these wines.
0: I hope you enjoyed this episode and search out these wines, which showcase just one small piece of what South Africa's wineries and South Africa's women winemakers in particular are creating. You can find more information about these winemakers and links to their websites at our own website, W-O-S-A dot U-S. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends, or better yet, go to the platform where you found it and leave a review. That will help more people discover it and discover South African wines. Next episode is going to be cool, by which I mean cool climate. We'll be looking at Elgin, the wine region with South Africa's coolest climate wine-growing conditions. If for you the word Africa still conjures up images of lions in the savannah, this will change your perspective.